0: you're watching global investor on business day tv i'm stephen Gunyan. on the show this week momentum investments. stephen schultz takes us through global markets news making headlines then our fund segment steven van jarsveld from methodical investment management puts forward the investment case for their global equity fund all that coming your way shortly first though a quick look at what's been making the headlines samsung electronics has been dealt another blow its ceo kun oh has resigned from the company citing an unprecedented crisis Kwon was seen as the next in line to steer the company after previous chief J.Y. Lee was convicted over bribery charges earlier this year. BMW is in talks with China's Great Wall Motor Company to make electric versions of the Mini Cooper. The talks are described as preliminary and do not call into question BMW's Mini facilities in the UK. Great Wall Motor shares spiked 14% on news of a potential tie-up. And U.S. President Donald Trump has urged Democrats to partner with him after he scrapped billions of dollars in Obamacare subsidies to private health insurers for low-income Americans. The news has received mixed reaction. Take a look at this report.
1: Such an exciting event. Because President Donald Trump
2: once again really pledged to dismantle Obamacare California as California, New York and other states so joined forces
1: yesterday, to yesterday. sue to block his move. It's step by step by step. And that was a very big step yesterday. Another big step was taken the day before yesterday. And one by one, it's going to come down, and we're going to have great health care in our country.
2: On Thursday, Trump signed an executive order to allow insurers to sell lower-cost, bare-bones insurance plans with limited benefits and consumer protections. He also scrapped subsidies to health insurers that help low-income Americans pay out-of-pocket medical expenses. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners cried foul. It said Trump's move would jack up premiums for consumers by up to 15 percent in 2018 and slash payments to insurers by
0: more than $1 billion consumer unions, Betsy Imholz. Well, the past two days have really been a double blow to consumers on health care. Um, between yesterday's executive order um, and today's announcement about withholding of the cost-sharing reduction payments, um, they really together destabilize the market incredibly, will raise prices, and not to mention all the confusion that it's created and the fear for consumers.
2: Shares of health insurers and hospital shares fell. Centene and Tenant Healthcare were hard hit.
0: Stephen Schultz from Moments of Investments joining me in studio now. Stephen, a very good evening. Any concerns of Trump's move to dismantle Obamacare? could have a detrimental effect on the the healthcare sector in the U.S.
2: Yeah, so so Donald Trump's got this this crazy gift of wherever he goes, he creates mixed reactions. Some (laughs) cheer him, some hate him, Um, so it's probably a little bit early to say exactly what what his move is, whether it's good or bad, and and by the same measure, his tax reforms, he's put down a framework which appears to be saving corporates um, from 35% to 20%. And And rich people. Rich people, individuals, uh, simplification and reduction. But the real question there is, is um, who's going to fund it? So it looks like it's going to cost 2.2 trillion US dollars over a decade. Um, it could well have a secondary benefit for, for business, which is, which is obviously what he's hoping. Mm-hmm. Um, but therein lies the, the mixed reaction that you get to him, whether you buy in or not. Um, and very few people sit on the fence, unfortunately, with Donald Trump.
0: So, so he's hoping that businesses would generate more revenue and thus Absolutely. pay more taxes even at a lower rate?
2: Correct. correct. So it boosts competitiveness, boosts the economy, boosts hiring, and, and ultimately feeds a, an upcycle. Um, but uh, unfortunately, what, what we what we don't tend to know up front is whether that's going to succeed. It's one of those hindsight um, questionnaires that needs to be filled in later.
0: So are you putting your money...
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, so look, I suppose on the on the monetary conversation, uh, I don't know whether there's any superstitious viewers. Um, it's gone largely unnoticed, fortunately. Um, but today is the thirty anniversary, thirty year anniversary of of Black Friday, um, which was in fact the, lo- the single largest drop um, on global exchanges, um, and we saw, I think it was the US, Europe, and Asia alone drop about twenty three percent in a single day. So that was largely ignored today, fortunately. Um, we saw a lot of positive sentiment, funny enough, coming out of global central bankers, of all people, um, who met at the IMF conference in, in Washington over the weekend. And I suppose there's a lot to cheer about in the global market at, at the moment. Um, we see corporate earnings are particularly robust. Um, we're looking at between the U.S. and, and Europe, somewhere between 11 and 14% growth for the current ca- calendar year. Uh, the Europe economy is, is absolutely booming. Uh, it's growing at the fastest pace in seven years at 2.2%. We've seen emerging markets benefit over the past 12 months. Uh, Emerging markets average is up 31% and developed markets trailing with a respectable 16% gain. Um, And I think what was the most interesting comment that I saw coming out of of the meeting this weekend was the fact um, that of 192 countries in the world today. All but six of them are expected to post positive gains uh, GDP wise, this this current year.
0: Even South Africa? Uh, South Africa is one of them, (laughs) barely. Fortunately
2: we are one of them, but barely, yeah. So certainly not the strongest emerging market.
0: So the 30th anniversary of Black Friday and yet um, Markets don't seem worried about any of these events at all. So whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's Brexit, whether it's Austria's elections th- uh, this weekend. Yeah. Markets seem to be taking it in the stride. Do you think they're becoming too complacent?
2: Yeah, look, I think there's, there's definitely a, a bit of a dislocation. If you were to watch um, news channels and see all the shocking headlines and all the risks on the horizon, um, you'd be surprised to, to switch channels and see almost uniformly across all stock markets recording mm. new highs after new highs. Um, and that certainly does create a little bit of anxiety, or at least it should create some anxiety with global investors, in that it appears that there could be a little bit of complacency creeping in. Okay, um, well
0: you, you sent us a graph of the VIX index, so if we pull up that graph, we can maybe see what you're talking about yes, absolutely. Um, over there. Um, I mean, what do you see as the big risks in the markets at the moment? So there's a
2: number of big risks. Uh, I suppose the, the, the easiest risk to identify is the fact that we are, are so far into a global uh, bull market. I think we're 115 months in at the moment. What you're looking at on the screen right now, in terms of VIX, is the volatility index or Wall Street's fear gauge. The higher up the line goes, the more fear there is in the market. And you can see that, that, that sharp spike in, in 2008, global financial crisis, and again for the euro, the euro crisis. Um, and I think what's, what's most remarkable is where we find ourselves today. Um, over this 10-year period, it, it, it's almost at record lows. So what this does show is investors are particularly comfortable Um, And when we're this far into a bull market, when markets have run so hard, everything's at all-time highs, with the risks on the horizon, it almost seems a bit illogical um, that -hmm. that we're so comfortable. And I think it was captured best by by Larry Summers, the former US Treasury Secretary and and respected academic, when he said the only thing we have to fear at the moment um, is a lack of fear in itself. (laughs) So so I think that captures it quite nicely. I'm not suggesting there is a correction just based on the length of the the stock market. Earnings are are certainly very favorable at the moment. but it, it's certainly not a cheap market. And and unfortunately, when you go that far into a comfort zone, uh, there is only one, one, point, um, one way from here. And that is, unfortunately, a little bit of a sell-off.
0: Okay. Well, uh, you mentioned U.S. earnings season. It's, it's already underway. We've had quite a number of the banks already reporting. And it looks um, like most of them have been good. Um, so I think Bank banks. of America um, quarterly profits up 15%. And um, trailing that was J.P. Morgan and Citibank. Wells Fargo, though, Profit down by nineteen percent.
2: Yeah, so I think what was odd about their their release um, was, as you mentioned, all three experiencing an increase in revenue and profit and, and beating esti- uh, expectations, um, which is which is always great. Mm. Um, but they did so on lower trading volumes, yeah. um, which was quite surprising. And, and so
0: f- fixed income trading was was done quite sharply, much which is all. quite
2: surprising. If you if you look at market volumes um, and you look at where the market is at, you would expect that to contribute uh, a lot more to to earnings. Nonetheless, um, we saw Wells Fargo, unfortunately not experiencing uh, the same sort of uh, euphoria um, we saw the the results come out i think it was on friday um, and they sold off about two and a half percent mm-hmm. um but the real discomfort there for for wells fargo shareholders is the litigation costs um which appear to be chipping away at at, at their revenue yes
0: yeah, so it's had a one billion dollar legal settlement sam but yeah. also had yes. a, a drop in mortgage banking revenue do you, do you think any Absolutely. any spillover from the 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 problems I had last year when it was mis-selling products or selling products that um, hadn't asked customers if they wanted.
2: Yeah, look, that was that was quite suspicious when phantom accounts just get opened. Um, so a lot of bad publicity from Wells Fargo. Uh, and unfortunately, you don't really understand where the rot is. Usually where there's smoke, there's fire. So mm-hmm. I don't want to dismiss it. Uh, it could well be related. Um, a lack of discipline in the past. It's obviously a, a focus at the moment. So I'd be surprised if it was continuing. Um, but what happens is you, you enjoy those good years from from your bad deeds um, for a while. And as soon as it starts to bite, uh, slowly investors and, and shareholders need to start paying for it. Um, so litigation costs, I suspect, are not going anywhere.
0: Yeah. Uh, y- y- your counsel. thoughts on the US banks in a, in a rising interest rates environment? Because I suppose higher interest rates have been helping them. Yes, so higher interest rates and if Donald Trump can pull it off, um, looser
2: regulation should certainly play into their favour. So they've had very strong, strong earnings, um, we've seen it for a number of, a number of uh, consecutive reporting seasons now, um, but I, I wouldn't suggest it's limited to banks. Um, we've seen generous earnings right across the board for, for US counters. Um, I think earnings today are in, in a position that they haven't been for seven years in the case of the US. So it's, it's quite consistent right across um, the US earnings spectrum mm-hmm. um, and with each positive surprise so the market drives higher. We've got earnings this week coming from Netflix. Um, we've got General Electric, which is one to watch. Um, Philip Morris is coming out, um, amongst many others. So, so particularly interesting, and, and, and I have a good feeling about earnings this time around.
0: Uh, good, good. Um, so you talked about rot, perhaps that's uh, Wells Car- Fargo. We've seen some rot at Kobe Steel, uh, a Japanese steel maker. Um, and I suppose this has implications for all of its customers as well.
2: Absolutely. Um, so the headlines, unfortunately, were that uh, Kobe Steel had been lying to no, no fewer than 500 clients um, about the quality of
0: the steel <laughs> that they've been
2: producing. It um,
0: supplies motor cars, motor, motor manufacturers. Which is absolutely
2: shocking. And, and another second blow to, to the reputation of made in Japan came in the form of Nissan. Um, so we saw Nissan also doing a million car recall, uh, and there, although slightly different, there's there's a similar lack of discipline in that um, people that were doing the final quality checks on the Nissan vehicles before sending them out to to customers mm-hmm. um, lacked the necessary qualifications to sign oh. it off, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite so the a janitor. Uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it would appear so. Okay, um, and I I see Kobe Steel was trading at five-year lows um, this morning, so it's taking some punishment from that. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, if you were a a client of theirs today or a prospective client, you would be asking questions about whether to sign that deal.
0: Okay. Um, Amazon um, entering the sports apparel market, developing its own sportswear line, and it's apparently using some of the manufacturers that make for Nike and Under Armour.
2: Yeah, so you've got to love when a a company the size of Amazon tries to hide their next move, um, (laughs) and and it's the manufacturers that ultimately give them away. So the rumours in the market at the moment from manufacturers that they're talking to is for them to enter the direct sporting apparel um, market whereby they'll be competing against the likes of uh, a Nike, an Adidas, an Under Armour and surprisingly Uniqlo. So those jackets that you see walking around shopping malls have f- one. during winter. <laughs> yeah. Um What you saw was Nike sold off quite strongly initially and and, and bounced back, fortunately, under armor less so. So I'd say the the counters were down about Mm -hmm. 2.5%. I suppose that's just the nature of a rumor. Um, if that does materialise, nobody ever wants to compete with the likes of uh, an Amazon, unfortunately.
0: D- does Amazon want to be a manufacturer, though? Is it, is it not moving outside of its comfort zone?
2: Yeah, so I think I think Amazon's one that is very difficult to define what their comfort zone is. Uh, it seems everywhere they go, they disrupt. I'm pretty they're sure they're a year ago <laughs> you would have said foods out of their comfort yeah. zone, uh, but there goes Whole Foods. So. So they have a, a knack for disrupting markets and, and the most unconventional markets. So I, I certainly wouldn't suggest that the rumour is just a rumour. Uh, it, it, it sounds like it's fairly reasonable.
0: Okay, so your stock pick today is Boeing and um, another customer of Kobe Steel. So let's hope that they haven't been fibbed, about, fibbed to about uh, the strength of the airplanes. Um, but you, you like Boeing? Yeah, so Boeing's,
2: Boeing's one we've had in our portfolios for some time. Um, it's one that is looking a little bit less attractive given how hard it has run uh, of late. Uh, it is of course a, a commercial jet stream um, engineer, producer and marketer uh, across the globe. It is not particularly cheap at 25 PE. It's slightly cheaper than the market. uh, That is despite a 101% rally over the past 12 months. Mm -hmm. Um, They have some very nice technologies. So incubators uh, generating new technology in aviation. Uh, Think along the lines of swapping out batteries on commercial aeroplanes. um, And they suggest that that could be the case in as little as five years. Um, they also have a very interesting military division. Um, it's not a bad time to be in the military game no. when headlines suggest that uh, people are ramping up military efforts and, and there's increasing global tension. Um, so, so a particularly interesting counter and one that we hold in our portfolio. And quarters. I suppose it would
0: also benefit from Donald Trump slapping massive duties onto rivals like Bombardier.
2: Absolutely. Um, so, so Donald Trump has a knack for disrupting markets with, with tariffs. Um, we saw him doing so in the commodity space mm-hmm. and, and now in the car space um, and, and, of course, airlines.
0: Okay, Stephen, we have to leave you there just for a moment. We're going to a short break. When we come back, we take a look at Methodical Investments Global Equity Fund. That's with Chief Investment Officer Stephen van Jarsveld. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, you're watching Global Investors. Still with me in the studio, Stephen Schultz from Momentum Investments. We're also joined by Methodical Investment Management's CIO Stephen van Jarsveldt to state the investment case for the Global Equity Fund. Um, so all three Stephen's tonight. Mm. <laughs> um, Stephen uh, van Jarsveldt, Methodical uh, Investment Management, who are, who are you? Um, uh, thanks, Stephen. The, the Methodical Investment
1: Management, uh, we are a systematic investment manager and what that means is we follow rules-based approach when it comes to investing and finding opportunities in the market Um, in south africa usually people automatically jump to the smart beta world or the the indexation world where globally uh, uh systematic investing is quite a it's a big theme out there um it's it's systems and machines finding opportunities for you and then you making the decisions on
0: it basically so so you still do make um, allocation decisions no. around the portfolio
1: so we so we we design the environment where the system goes and look and then it implements th- those strategies uh, on a very systematic way what we do in the office every day is we try and uh, evolve the the system to try and execute
0: m- uh, better and uh, more efficiently okay so, so your global equity funds pretty new um, yes. you launched it last August but you only started taking retail investors um, as recently as about three or four months ago
1: yes so uh, the strategy launched in uh, June when we started trading it and then we uh, launched the retail fund which is a usage fund based in Dublin uh, end of or in August 2016 um, and since June we've done well it's uh, we Ahead of the benchmark um, since June. And then uh, it's one thing to also mention is it's only a developed market fund. So we only invest, if you look at the world map like this, and you draw a line through the US, Europe, a little bit of the Asians and Australasia, that is our our universe. Why specifically those markets? Um, So, you know, being a systematic manager, you can actually go and test your theories. So we've actually included some of the the emerging markets, when we started out, uh, to try and test how our strategies to actually work there, and we found that emerging markets actually add a lot of volatility, especially from a currency point of view. As South Africans, we're quite used to currency volatility, but everyone writes in the UK when uh, the mm. the pound drops at twenty percent. So, um, from a return risk perspective, we've actually decided not to include EMs. In there, and uh, you can get some EM exposure through your DM counters, like something like BMW has massive exposure to China, but it is a German listed company.
0: Do you think that might put you at a disadvantage to your benchmark, which is the MSCI world, and would have some emerging markets, um, particularly when emerging markets do come back into favor and perhaps do well?
1: It is. uh, So, being systematic, we rely on data, so we always, uh, it takes a while for the ship to change. We always wait for. what they call um, published earnings Um, so when only after earnings is published then the portfolio readjusts itself Um, and then usually when EMs do well these counters within developed markets would tend to uh, that are exposed to emerging markets, okay. we tend to come into the portfolio more. Yeah. Yeah. So, Stephen, your, your thoughts on
0: systematic investing? Um, yeah, look, so, so investing?
2: am I correct in assuming that it's it's largely n- a numbers-driven algorithm game? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, is there any layer of due diligence you do on the stocks? Is there something that could stick out from a model that just doesn't make you comfortable managing the portfolio?
1: So when at, at Methodical, we've got an investment process where in or a testing environment where we say, Whenever we test a strategy, it has to work on everything in all markets over all sectors. We, we never do data fitting, so we never actually go into a sector and say, we prefer mining stocks to be traded this way and banking stocks to be traded this way. It has to work uh, overall. So yes, sometimes we call them false signals. Uh, sometimes we do have false signals that enter the portfolio, but because it's a quite a large and diverse portfolio, mm. um, these the, the false signals tend to fall out. We know exactly. We know our heat rate in the global space is about 59 percent of all the stocks we buy, make money. So we, we have designed a process to allocate more to the winners and less to losers. So okay. you want you, the false signals, you wanna allocate as little as possible to them.
0: Okay. So how aligned are you in your asset allocation to the MSCI world? Because uh, I see you're also overweight U.S. equities as, as the MSCI world so would be.
1: So yes, so uh, geographically we try and keep it pretty much on par. Um, we are a little bit overweight um, when it comes to a- Australia and Canada. Uh, our, ma- our models do really well there and uh, it's a tactical decision from our side. Um, in the US we're about 50, 50 to 55% allocated depending on how well it does relative to the others. And then uh, Europe also, uh, the whole Eurozone stock 600 is th- uh, is the second largest at about 35%. Okay.
2: And I see on a risk rating basis, you, you've rated it a five out of seven. Yes. Um,
1: despite the fact that
2: it's a pure equity fund. Yes. Um, what is what is the logic behind that? Are there are they risk management mechanisms within the portfolio?
1: Absolutely. So, we've got two systems. We've got a system that we call Propel and a system that we call Navigate. Propel is our alpha model. It's the it's the mo- it's the model that goes and finds opportunities in the market for us. Navigate is a is a system that manages the risk for us. And how Navigate works, it upweights and downweights um, counters within the portfolio according to how. Uh, risky they are, and we measure risk on relative value so and when it talks we talk about relative value, we talk about relative value to itself. Mm-hmm. so people get used to paying one hundred and eighty multiple for something like Amazon or uh, one hundred and twenty multiple for an aspers but uh, something like a sassle at a multiple of 20 might be quite rich, where something at
0: like an aspers at a multiple
1: of 80 might be quite cheap. Mm.
0: Okay, uh, I mean some, some of the stocks that have cropped up in the top 10, and you, you don't have Amazon there, or no, no. Facebook, so none of the fangs in there. There's some interesting shares like Activision, Blizzard, and Micron your bones in there
2: as is as is Netflix (laughs) Uh,
0: and Netflix okay so we do have one of the the things and you wouldn't have chosen those they they are chosen by the the machine yes so uh,
1: a lot of times we we run a local and a global fund and a lot of times when you know whenever the global fund list gets uh, populated we we go and research some of these companies to find out so Activision Blizzard is a great example where they the, they're only the third company to be to be to get into the Fortune 500, um, a third gaming company, and they own games like uh, World of Warcraft, Call of Duty. And they also have a have a business called Major League Gaming, which uh, is exactly what it is. It's like uh, the NFL or the, the basketball league, mm-hmm. where guys actually game against each other, and guys you know the top guys and from three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars a year, so they actually make a good living out of it
2: and speaking of crazy tech multiples (laughs) um, i assume i assume what feeds the model is is data does that does that then am i correct in assuming that that would then alienate some of the some of the tech ipos that gets the market so excited absolutely there's no data
1: absolutely so we we uh, have strict rules uh, around our universe so we firstly we only trade the largest one and a half thousand stocks in the world it's for liquidity purposes, and secondly, that share has to have a minimum of at least three-year track record before it can enter the portfolio, because we need enough data on it to be actually to know where the model should actually put it.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, do, you, do you make tactical allocations to sectors? So where you have twenty-four percent in technology, um, big exposures to consumer cyclical and non-cyclical. R- would you make tactical allocations there?
1: So now the the portfolio is built up. From uh, the bottom up the allocation so we screen the uh, universe on a stock basis and whatever stocks into the portfolios makes up the the sector allocation in the portfolio the only thing we have uh, the only thing we control is the Geographical allocation of the of the portfolio, and in and
2: in terms of when the model signals buys and sells, I'm assuming that happens quite frequently. Yes. how do you how do you guard against churning the portfolio and, and ramping up fees ultimately?
1: No, no. So we we very um, so we know exactly the liquidity profile of the fund and how large, uh, you know, how frequent you should trade according to size of the fund. Mm. So we actually try and trade as little as possible, um, and then. According to liquidity, will ramp up trading okay. uh, that. So we're very, we're very cost sensitive.
0: But, I mean, does that mean you, you don't necessarily move when you do see those sell uh, signals? No, triggered? no. When
1: so, we uh, we tend to trade more in the more in the more liquid days, mm-hmm. which tend to be the end of the month and beginning of the month. Most liquidity events happen at that point in time. Um, you'll see middle of the month, it actually falls off quite dramatically. Um, so we try and. Buy and sell of counters in those liquidity events. We have th- the the least market impact.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, you said the universe of stocks you look at is about one and a half thousand. How many How many shares are actually in the portfolio?
1: So there's 65 uh, counters
0: in the portfolio. So it is
1: quite um, uh, concentrated uh, from a global fund point of view, um, but we quite like we quite like it. We always say. Uh, in the office, d- uh, you know, every all the animals that get eaten, their eyes are on the side of their head, and all the animals that hunt them, their eyes are in front. So <laughs> we we quite we like the the aggressive stance on that.
0: And uh, b- I mean, would you stick to about sixty-five stocks. Or are you looking at growing that? When
1: whenever we I- whenever we add a geography, um, we'll decide how ma- how many counters in that geography, and then uh, you know that it it would increase the allocation to the portfolio a little bit, but we'll never allocate anywhere if it doesn't increase the risk return port, uh, payoff of the, prop of the portfolio.
0: And how much does all this cost the investor? Um, so our, our retail fees
1: for direct or platform fees is 1.3%, is um, with a 15% performance fee above MSCI World. Obviously, for larger mandates um, and direct investing, that, that fee goes down a lot. Mm.
2: Tell me, how many guys would be supporting the management of this fund? I assume there's not a, a team of analysts, but rather a, a team of quant guys. A
1: team of quant guys. Yeah. So we we uh, currently three guys in the office. We're looking for uh, one more hire, um, or not in the office in the investment team. We have about nine people currently in the office. Okay. So it's it's yeah it's it's all quanty guys that we want working there, and we actually prefer guys that don't have financial experience because we tend, we we've learned that they tend to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. Where finance guys sometimes, you know, they assume, or not assume they know it, they assume they should know it.
2: Mm -hmm. And and your (laughs) your single best idea expressed in the portfolio?
1: Um, Well, currently, to be honest, uh, one of our favorites is a company called A2 Milk. Um, It's it's an Aussie business. Um, the guy studied at Cambridge and he found that there's two types of proteins in milk called A2 and A1 and um, A1 actually makes you uncomfortable, some people are uncomfortable when they drink milk, excuse me. And um, So they've actually found some cows that actually only produce the A2 strand of milk and they started a dairy from this. Today that business is a 33 million dollar market cap business with 44 employees Selling milk into the U.S., U.K., China, Aussie, New Zealand, and it's uh, the share price is a dollar a year ago. It's seven dollars today. Um, it's an
0: amazing business. So that's that's some of the stuff we find. Uh, without without one process. Okay, um, Stephen, you definitely piqued Stephen's interest, and I'm <laughs> yeah, very happy to have much. <laughs> there. Probably get you <laughs> in at a year's time so we can see how, th- how this has all worked out. But th- thanks so much for coming through Thank today. You very much. That's all we have time for the show this week. Thanks again to our guests, the Stevens, for their insights, uh, thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.